0: I'm
1: your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner-Kahn, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Welcome to part two of Tehillah Talks, as we discuss uh, anti-Semitism in the world today and how it affects and is real or not real for the younger generation. And uh, I welcome Elliot and Julian and Helena and Bernie and Alexis to this conversation. And I will share with you as we go deeper into it, that some years back, this is quite some years back, I went back to Germany with my mother, my husband, and my son, and I uh, My mother showed us all the places that she had known growing up in in Berlin, and we went to the cemetery. There's a very large Jewish cemetery in Berlin, and it really brought home how well established the Jewish community in Berlin was when Hitler came to power. It really brought home the sense of security that was felt. And why my grandfather, who said it's time to get out of Dodge, was the outlier among his middle class colleagues and friends, because, hey, it's never going to get really bad, even though there were Nuremberg laws, even though people were saying things. So it's anti-Semitism is about tropes, about generalizing about people. I don't know if any of you have ever been pennied, um, but, uh, <laughs> but you have? Yeah. yeah. You want to tell people what that is?
2: What I understand it to be is someone threw a penny at me, but maybe it's a wider, I don't know. That's what I think it is. it.
1: It's uh, throwing pennies at Jews because Jews are money grabbing. And so if you throw pennies at a, at a Jewish person, of course, they're going to pick it up. Of course. Right. So that's a trope. That's a trope. Jews and money. And another trope is that people don't recognize because, again, not knowing the story that in, and I don't know if you know this, the, in the Middle Ages, uh, Jews were accused of drinking the blood of children around Easter. And that trope comes up, still comes up today, right? So these tropes are very harmful. I want to make another link and I want your impression of it. So we're at a moment where, You know, if you're a Hasidic Jew in Brooklyn, you may be attacked because you're very visibly Jewish. If you wear a yarmulke or a Star of David, you might be attacked because you're Jewish. However, unless you are a Jew of color, your likelihood of being attacked for being Jewish physically is really not that great. In our New York at this moment, being Asian, walking down the street, Asian is much more dangerous than walking down the street Jewish. And there are more hate crimes. Against Asians, And if you are African-American in New York, there is hate crime. It's just a community that doesn't report it all that much. So this goes back to what I brought up at the beginning, is the laws we have about how we behave with others really matters. In this moment where anti-Semitism seems to be rearing its head in new ways. What is it demanding of us in relation to other groups? Alexis.
0: Okay, so oh, not, not a whole lot of my friends are Jewish. I don't have a lot of Jewish friends. I just didn't make them. However, a lot of my friends are of other minority groups as well. And I think when I was, I felt like after, especially, you know, after this past week, <laughs> which was not fun in the slightest, It was just like letting them know that this is what was happening and what I was feeling felt like I feel like it was because it made them acknowledge what was happening. And I feel like I think that's what really needs to happen, especially because most of them hadn't been horribly attuned to it because, you know, everybody has their own things. They have school, they have family stuff. So I felt like just getting them to acknowledge it was a Like it wasn't even a big success, but it did. It made it just that much better.
1: (laughs) Are you talking, you're talking about Texas right now? Yes.
3: I'm talking about Texas, right? Helena. Well, I'm sort of sad to admit that I really didn't know about Texas until I looked it up today. I like, I think where I am right now, I don't know if it's my school or or just where I am or the fact that I know maybe under 10 other Jewish people here. I feel like it's in a different world from where I was a couple months ago. It's especially in New York, especially going to a predominantly Jewish school, as also an activist oriented school that um I just I think that where I am right now, I'm sort of unless I'm actively more tuned in to the news, which I definitely should be, I feel like everything's hidden in um in this little bubble right now because I don't I have not been hearing all that much. I have not been tuned in as I should be, but also, I mean, where I was, uh, last year, it, even if I wasn't tuned in, I was hearing all about it from the communities I was part of, from my family, from my school. But here, I think it's been a huge difference. And I mean, I think also being Jewish and Judaism is perceived much, much differently here. Like even one of my friends the other day, I was having a conversation with a group of friends and I sort of mentioned offhand that I was Jewish. And he said, Oh, no way. I, you're the fifth Jewish person I've met in my life. And then proceeded to take a picture of me to, to document that he had encountered another uh, Jewish person and, and said, and then proceeded to show me pictures of the other people he had encountered at the school and in, in general, it was like, Oh, do you know them? Do you? (laughs) And, and he was one of my friends too. And, and I, it it was just surprising to me also because he's from New Jersey. And I just, I I didn't expect that, but I like, those, that's the type of story that like I've, I've heard about, but it just happened. And I mean, also little things that like in my friend group, there are two kids named Mark and, one of them's Jewish. And so to differentiate them, some people say, Oh, that's a Jew mark. And, and I've, I've mentioned it before that it's, that's not okay, but um, it's not perceived as no, no one perceives that as bad. No one perceives that as something that they shouldn't say or do I I think it's just a whole new world out here to me.
1: So if he were black, what would, you know, what would he be? Right. I mean, I'm just just raising our sensibilities, right. Mm -hmm yeah how would they differentiate which one you're talking about black mark I mean, I mean they they I, also, and, and that wouldn't and that would not fly I don't know that that would fly
3: they, they also sometimes say Israeli mark even though that's <laughs> he's not from Israel <laughs> and yeah and it's it's very surprising to me but also not really surprising
1: so the question here then becomes what's your response and how do you respond to it I mean I' say Matt it's not pressure. It's just, how do we, how do we respond when we encounter it is the, is, is the bigger question. Yeah. Helena.
3: Yeah. Also, because I, I do speak up sometimes about it and I have, I have, but there's also this pressure of being one of the only people in, in the room that's Jewish. And so not wanting to maybe respond as, as harshly or as yeah absolutely just because it like it can be scary and just being perceived just putting myself in the position at as just being perceived as the other in in those situations.
1: I can totally empathize with that because I went to school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania as opposed to going to Barnard, my two options. And the people I was in school with, although there definitely were Jews on campus, my friend group was not predominantly Jewish. They were theater people, but they weren't necessarily, they were not predominantly Jewish. And yeah, and I'm a first generation American. And here's this, this key part of my identity that really didn't come into play in that setting. But the heat, the heat that you all are experiencing in the world was not at the same level. I'm going to fr- put it that way also. But in dealing with other groups, how does, the rise or the, or, or the sense that there is anti-Semitism out there, whether it's just sort of a miasma of it or Texas, how does that affect your, your thinking about other groups and what you want to do and how you want to present yourself? Bernie?
4: Um, I'm thinking back to something you said in the last part. So for the listeners, it was probably a while ago, <laughs> but about kind of the how Jewish laws are like based on stories And I think that kind of, that permeates so much of what Judaism is. It's like that empathy, right? It's not, it's not just, this is a rule or this is a story. It's like putting you into the story or like explaining why the law, like why you would want the law to be in place. And I think that empathy is just as important as ever, if, if not more, because it makes absolutely no sense to separate these issues. I mean, they should be recognized as separate issues, but it, it doesn't make sense to not combine efforts and work together and struggle separately instead of struggling together and working together.
1: Elliot, any thoughts on this? I think I agree
5: on the, I, like Bernie said, the idea to work together. Also, like I said, I, among my close friend group, one of my close friends is also Jewish, and my other two close friends are both um, Muslims, actually, from South Asia. And so we, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting, especially like I mentioned, a lot of the time, like mostly when I think me and my friends' Jewish identity really uh, becomes like an actual topic of discussion, it's when the conversation goes to Israel. I think my other friends are kind of looking to us for like what they feel or what we feel is like okay to say or like you know which i respect a lot i think you know it's good that i think you know they're i guess you could say putting in the work and obviously we also i think talk with them honestly and discuss with them about what it means for them like what what israel is doing to palestinians means for them as muslims because they do uh, naturally, well, not naturally, but they do feel a s- sense of solidarity with uh, Muslims in Palestine that I would say, especially because of Islamophobia in America, actually, I think it's pretty, It's in some ways, similar to how maybe American Jews feel about Israel, right? Religious compatriots. And generally, I think that that kind of uh, solidarity is... Uh, very important in these kinds of conversations or like how we would do at Tehillah, right? Sometimes when on some holidays, I remember, sometimes we'd host some people from the mosque, right? That was really nice. Reminds me a lot of that. And so I think in terms of working with other groups, that kind of solidarity is very, I think it's, it benefits everyone in terms of like learning, you know, what other people are going through, And just working together to develop, you know, an understanding that doesn't just draw from one perspective.
1: Being able to listen, which is, I think, the hardest thing of all, right? Being able to hear other voices that don't necessarily agree with you. And how do we find common ground? Alexis, I want to just bring up what you sort of started me on this topic, because it was a conversation that she and I had this week, because it was Holocaust Remembrance Day and uh, and her school had a program, and they weren't going to mention what happened in Texas. And um, I, I want to just point out that Holocaust Remembrance Day is some is a is a date on the calendar when Auschwitz was liberated by, by the Allies. and it's not doesn't come from a Jewish ethos. it comes from the United Nations, which uh, created what I would call in, in Jewish parlance a parv. a a kind of neutral holiday by equating the deaths of all those who suffered under Nazism. And I bring this up because part of what we're also going through is a revisionism about the Holocaust. There is a piece in the New York Times about it today, what's going on in Poland. And we know that and and, in many other places in Eastern Europe, The local population worked in in collaboration with the Nazis. That's a reality. Yes, that happened. And now in Poland, uh, Auschwitz is um, being kind of redone to remember the Polish victims. And so part of it is how do we tell the story in a way that doesn't say, this is really hard, that doesn't say, oi, we've really suffered you know, we suffered the Spanish Inquisition. We suffered the Holocaust. We've suffered. Boy, have we suffered. And how do we not um, use that to blind us to the suffering of others? How do we use that as a way of saying, I'm not whitewashing. I'm, this happened. I want to, to tell the full story. And yes, you are going through something. If you're Black in America, you have a story to tell, and we are not necessarily hearing it, right? We have endemic racism in this country. And uh, I heard an amazing story recently, which is all about taking it back. Literally. Some I know her mother survived the, the camps, was in a DP camp and went back to the town that she grew up in in Hungary. And she went to the house where they had asked their neighbor to store a few things in a suitcase And the woman set the table for them and there was a tablecloth and and she asked about various objects and she looked at the tablecloth and she said, my mother made that tablecloth. No, 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 she didn't. No, yes, she did. My mother made that tablecloth and she turned it over and and showed her mother's initials. And she said, I'm going to pull this tablecloth off the table with all your dishes if you don't take this tablecloth off. And uh, the woman agreed and then gave ultimately after a lot of backing and forth and gave her, more, gave her more of the things that had been taken. It's a story you hear over and over again. Our stories matter. We can hear, tell the same stories in Israel about Palestinians whose property was taken away. These are the stories we need to tell and we need to tell the parallels and how do we stand up for each other. I think that's the hard part. It's not just ours, there are other people who have suffered. And how do we stand together? So anti-Semitism is one piece of it. Uh, Anti-Asian is another piece of it, right? Within, within boundaries, it's something else. How do we do that when we feel assailed? And at this point in this conversation, I think Alexis is the one who's felt most assailed. Uh, I don't know that the rest of you feel like you've been really hit by this in any strong way. She and I realize we have common ground in being first-generation Americans, so maybe we have a slightly different perspective on that. You're only half first-generation American, Helena. So, <laughs> But, you know, how, how do we go forward? And how do we tell the story so that it has meaning for us and aid for others? That's, that's the dilemma. And, and how do we use it as an ethical tool and not one to beat each other up? I know I'm asking really hard questions here. But that's what's bothering me right now. Jillian.
2: I mean, have you heard of Eric Fromm? He's, he was a holocaust. Yeah. And his book, I think it's Freedom from Fear. I haven't read it, but my understanding of the premise is essentially that like a desire to escape fear is part of what contributed to the rise of Nazism and anti-Semitism in, in Germany. And I think that's an interesting concept to like explore these issues because if we submit entirely to fear, we might do things that lead to just more and more chaos and and suspicion. And that's something that's studying international relations. They would call that a security dilemma, where what one country does to preserve its own security is perceived by others as aggressive. And then there's a descent into, into violence, essentially. And You know, like I I worked for a politician and they had me kind of like following the anti-Asian hate stories and or, you know, news articles. And a lot of them were A, people who are homeless, B, people who are clearly experiencing mental health issues. And like, yeah, it was it wasn't really like white nationalists coming out of the woodwork in Manhattan to attack people. It was a more complex story than that. So I think we have to acknowledge, like, how does the media, how does our own instincts create these situations where we misperceive and react in ways that aren't actually productive? So I I feel like part of that is like, you know, Poland, I'm not an expert on what's currently happening, but Poland in the past was very upset with like these camps being labeled Polish death camps, because in their mind, they were German death camps on Polish soil. So as a Jewish community, are we going to be so fearful of that desire to, uh, redefine that we end up alienating people more. So like, it's, it's kind of this, like, I feel like this is with everything in life. Like the answer is not really the answer. You sort of have to balance things that contradict and, and work against each other. There's a cat standing on me, but yeah, that, that's kind of my thoughts.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah.
5: Well, I think I agree with Julian that we can't allow fear to a hundred percent prevent us from you know, uh, making these redefinitions. But I think it's important also to remember that the Polish government that's attempting to make these redefinitions is a, by pretty much any standards, it's a very far-right government. And a lot of the Polish victims of the Holocaust were people that I don't think the current Polish government really wants to remember. A lot of them were, you know, a lot of the Polish victims of the Holocaust were communists or Roma, or I think other people or LGBT people who are through the current Polish government is also not very fond of, to put it lightly. So I think while it's true that we need to remember that, I think it's true that we need to not be so afraid of redefinition to say that it's only Jewish people who suffered in the Holocaust. But I think we have to remember that, like I said before, it's about solidarity. The other victims of the Holocaust were also generally oppressed peoples exactly. or people who were or people who are fighting to end oppression. So I think really, well, it's true that we have to have redefinition. We also have to keep in mind that that redefinition, as it should, comes from should come from a spirit of solidarity and anti-fascism. We have to remember, like, I think saying that the Holocaust was the unique, although it, it was a uniquely anti-Jewish crime kind of. Misremembers the fact that it was also a fascist crime against people who didn't fit the dominant ideology, the fascist ideology's image of who was desirable and who was a good person.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I think, and the other thing that that Julian said about the mental health piece is really important because what we have now is people with mental health issues reading conspiracy theories online and taking them to heart and then acting on them. So it's not it's not to say that there aren't mental health issues involved. It's what's being promulgated in these other spaces that gives them support to behave in the ways in which they do. Justification. I cut you off a little bit, Elliot. I, you want to say more, so I'm gonna let you finish your thought there.
5: Well, actually what you said makes me think of what to say more. You said like about how it's a lot of the time these incidents are done by people with mental health issues. I think that really connects more broadly to how anti-Semitism has been used historically. And I think, I can't remember who said this, but someone once said, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. A lot of the time, the people in power use anti-Semitism as a way to explain to other oppressed people, to provide a false narrative for why they're in the condition that they're in. And I think that to some extent can apply maybe to people with mental issues or to incidents where other people who are oppressed by what i would say oppressed by capitalism you know end up blaming the jews or blaming the real problems that they see in their lives and how they're treated by society as being the fault of somehow jews instead of what i would say is the actual the actual reason for that which is the hierarchical structures that are embedded in our society that allowed fascist groups to take power in the first place, which is why, again, I have to say, stop it.
1: I'm stopping you there for time, not because what you're saying isn't valuable, and I want to give other people uh, an opportunity for uh, to make a closing statement to share your closing thoughts on this. This is, we could talk for hours on this. Let's, let's be honest about that. But I, I do want to hear your closing thoughts. And um, Helena, I'm going to start with you since you, you said you were in your bubble. So sitting in your bubble, how do, you, how do you want to close this conversation?
3: I think that hearing what everyone has had to say today, I think I, I do need to take more of an activist stance, especially where I am. And I feel that because um, a lot of these issues are being ignored at least in my eyes, where, where I am right now, maybe I need to be part of what bring, brings them back into the picture and into the conversation.
2: Thank you. Julian. I think I agree with what everybody said that I think the best answer is solidarity with other people who are experiencing similar issues and that only by not only advocating for ourselves, but for others, that's the way that we can really make progress on these issues.
1: Thank you. Bernie?
4: Yeah, I agree. But the issue of solidarity and empathy, I would say, also is so big. And I think there's a potential for the calling out of anti Semitism to become like, look at us, we're oppressed too, like almost like a competition of like who is oppressed more, you know? And that's so unproductive. It's so not what we should be doing. So I think that that idea of having solidarity with other groups. And working together with that instead of saying, look at me, I'm I'm so oppressed and look at me, I'm so oppressed, right? It's just not productive. So it, yeah, joining together, I think, instead of just highlighting our own struggles. Alexis?
0: Yeah, I like the idea of, you know, join together in solidarity. Don't be separated by like competition or like, oh my God, you know, all these things that are happening to me are worse than what's happening to you. But I also think part of that is when we talk about the Holocaust and the way we talk about anti-Semitism and all these, you know, horrible moments is we need to, I think, think about them in a way that is like they're happening. And I think particularly with the Holocaust, I do think we need to go back to where it started and think about all of these little things. I mean, this is where it started. It started with little things. And also when we talk about the Holocaust is more than just, going back to the idea that it only affected Jews, it obviously didn't only affect Jews and talk about how when we say never forget and never again, we mean for anybody, never again, not just for Jews.
1: Yeah, that's all I have to say. Elliot, anyone, any closing thoughts?
5: I think I said a lot earlier, but I 100% agree with pretty much everyone who's gone before me. And I think like... Alexis said like we have to remember that like we have to look back to like a lot of the origins of these horrific crimes and realize the dynamics that were in play although i'd say also that while we should definitely have solidarity and we have to not engage in like bernie said that com- that like competition of we're more oppressed that doesn't mean that we have to forget entirely or we have to devote ourselves entirely to other people we should still definitely remember what has happened to us and what anti-Semitism means. And I think uh, there might be people solidarity and think that they need to bury everything that, that they personally experience or that they uh, feel strongly about and bury it because they need to have solidarity with other people. And I would say we need solidarity, but we don't need people who are so devoted to helping other people or other groups' problems that they forget about their own.
1: Thank you. So uh, sometimes that's called the Oppression Olympics. I don't know if any of you have heard that term, but I I think knowing our story, understanding our story, enables us to understand the stories of others. And whether it's the Japanese internment camps in the United States, right, there are stories there are many, many stories for different groups, and our job is to hear them and know our own. Because if we don't know our own story, that makes it us a, a much easier group to oppress and come out after. So I, I invite you to to understand what anti semitism is and its complexity. It's not it's not straightforward, and and it's not simple to understand. And why us? And I think you all recall that movie that I shared with you in your B'nai Mitzvah training of the, the tribe that shows that Jews make up this teeny weeny little dot of people in all the billions of people in the world, right? We are 15 million out of how many billion? why do we get all this attention? It's a little nuts. So with that thought, I thank you for this really, really rich conversation. Have a great day. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate all of you coming. Thank you, Elliot, Jillian, Bernie, Alexis, and Helena all the way out from Ohio. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehila Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.